Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Matthew, um, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 18, remind you uh, once again that the Bible is God's word, it is uh, holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, um, it is uh, our only uh, infallible rule of faith and practice. And so uh, understanding that, understanding this is God speaking to us as we read from his word, I would ask you if you're able, please, to stand together with me as we read. From Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not... Uh, and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the, prophet, what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and gave him the name Jesus. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, it's, it's probably true for many of you. It is true for me. This is my favorite time of year. Uh, this time of year holds a lot of incredibly fond memories to me, and they probably do to you as well. I remember when uh, Marge Hendry was still alive, and she, we had one a special time around this time of year when we were telling about our stories of, of Christmas and remembrances that we had. And she remembered one Christmas uh, growing up in, in uh, Wisconsin when uh, all the, the children in her family would, would march down the stairs uh, to the Christmas tree where all the gifts were on Christmas morning. They were holding candles, and one of the children lit the other child's hair on fire. It was right in front of them. I don't have any great memories quite like that, but, but I do remember... Um, us all loading up in, in my dad's 1963 Chevrolet pickup, and we did an awful thing. All of the kids sat in back, right in the bed of that pickup. You know, the dangerous thing. But we would all load up in the pickup, the kids in back, and we would go right across the street. The, it's Highway 82. We, we lived right on Highway 82. We'd go right across the street to the woods that were across the street, and we'd go back in the woods and hunt of that perfect Christmas tree. And we would, we would pick out two or three we thought it might work, and finally we would decide on which one it was going to be. We would chop the tree down and, and bring it and load it back in the truck, and all of us kids hop back in the back of the truck, back to home to, to set up the Christmas tree and the smell of that cedar filling the house. 
and uh, we would decorate the tree, and it wasn't long after that presents would start to appear under the tree, and that was great. You know, you you would examine the presents that were all wrapped there, and you would you would look at them, and sometimes you would find the one with your name on it. And those were a special uh, interest. Those were a special interest to me. I didn't care if it said Wanda or Janice or Cindy, but if it said Daryl, that was a, that was an important one, right? So I remember looking at the, at the presents and, and examining the shape of the of the present that was wrapped there. And the shape and, and the size might give me some indication as to what was inside that present. I would pick it up and see how much it weighed. Maybe shake it and see if the sound of it moving around in the box would make any indication as to what was in there. I was wondering what, what could it be, right? Never knowing exactly what was in it until Christmas Eve when we opened our presents and then you would open it and it would be revealed and it would be something great, you know, a Christmas present. Well, this morning as we think about that first Christmas season, what we call the Christmas season, the first advent of our Lord, I, I want us to remember the, the very first and the absolute greatest Christmas present that was ever given to anybody. And it was given to every one of us who are a child of God's. It was Christ. This morning as we come and as we think about uh, the announcement of the, of the baby to Joseph as we've seen here in Matthew's gospel. And uh, Matthew was, he knew the Old Testament, he knew uh, the things that had been promised, but he didn't know exactly what it was going to look like. It was almost like the promises in the Old Testament were like that, that box, that present that was coming in Christ. And, and you could look at it and kind of see the shape of it and maybe, maybe know the, the weight of it. And maybe you were to take it and shake it, but you just weren't completely sure what it would look like until he came. So this morning what I want us to do is to go back into the Old Testament and begin to look at these promises of Christ's coming and how that would shape certain things about him. But we, we, we could get some idea, but it wasn't completely sure what it would look like until he came. So I want us to look at, at these promises and then see what it looked like once these promises came to fruition. I want us to see that all of the Old Testament in reality is about the coming of Christ. When you read the Old Testament, you should not be reading it apart from the lens that this too is about Christ. This is the promise, the greatest promise of all of history, that a Savior was going to come. This morning, I want us to look at a few of these, these promises, if you will, kind of a shape of the, of the box of this wonderful gift, okay? And the first thing I want us to note is from Genesis 3.15, which is actually, in Scripture, the very first promise of the coming of Christ. And it's an interesting thing. It's quite interesting how it comes to us. You, you think about the, the promises of the coming of Christ and you think this is something as we're celebrating today in this uh, third Sunday of Advent, joy. This is, this is a promise of joy. But as we see this very first promise of the coming of Christ, we see that it's a curse. For we find it in Genesis 3.15. 
You may recall in Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see the creation. God puts man in the garden and he tells him he's free to eat from any tree of the garden except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If he eats from that tree, he's going to die. Genesis chapter 3, you find the woman uh, having a discussion with the serpent who is Satan. And uh, as, as, as they're discussing uh, uh, what God has done for them here, um, he says, did God really tell you not to eat from any tree in the garden? She said, oh, no, we can eat from any tree except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We can't eat from that or we're going to die. And Satan says, you won't die. God knows if you eat that, you're going to be equal to him. And so he entices her and she takes and eats the fruit and then she gave it to her husband and he ate. And immediately when the fruit touched his lips, their eyes were opened and they recognized that they're naked. Now God had been walking with them on a regular basis in the garden, but they recognize their nakedness now and they try to cover themselves with fig leaves and they're fearful that God's going to come in and see them in their nakedness. So they go and try to hide. God comes in the garden and he says, Adam, why are you trying to hide from me? Did you eat of the fruit I told you not to eat from? And you remember, Adam, there's this, this woman that you gave me. And then the woman says, the devil made me do it. Well, now, after this, God comes and he, he has told man what would happen as a result of, of uh, eating this fruit. And now he's going to bring a curse upon them. He brings a curse to, uh, but he brings a curse, first of all, to Satan. And that's where we pick it up in Genesis 3.15. This is a curse to Satan. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He will crush your head, but you, you will strike... You, he will strike your heel, you will crush his head. This is bad news for Satan. This is a curse on Satan, but you can imagine here Adam and Eve within hearing of this, and they're hearing it, and what is bad news for Satan is actually wonderful news for man. The one, one who's going to come. One who's going to come who's going to be the enemy of Satan. One who's going to come, who's going to do battle with Satan, and, and he's going to wind up defeating Satan soundly, crushing his head. And by doing this, by defeating Satan, crushing his head, he's going to undo all the evil that had been brought upon man by, by man's eating of the fruit, which Satan enticed him to do. Satan hears this. Satan knows it's going to happen. Satan knows this curse that God has promised and this curse that would actually mean great things for man, but Satan tries to stop it uh, long before Christ's coming. You remember when the people were enslaved in Egypt and he has Pharaoh uh, go out and, and kill the firstborn of every family. He's trying to destroy the line so that it, it, the, the Christ can't come. There are attempts throughout the Old Testament of Israel going to battle with other nations in an attempt, Satan trying to destroy the nation of Israel from whom the Christ is supposed to come. It's an attempt to stop the coming of the Christ, this one who's going to do battle with Satan and defeat him. 
There were, as you find many places in the Old Testament, there are times when uh, uh, Israel's tempted to intermarry with other nations and thus destroying the line of Israel again to prevent the coming of Christ. And then when Christ is actually uh, come and is born, you know, the uh, wise men come to Jerusalem and ask, where is he who's been born a king of the Jews? And what does Herod do? He says, I'm going to find him and, and kill him is, is what he wants to do. Satan is trying to destroy this one who will come and destroy Satan himself and destroy the work of Satan. But Christ comes and he, he does battle with Satan. And we see it first right after the baptism of Jesus. And he goes into the wilderness. And as he's there in the wilderness, Satan comes with temptation. And if you look at the temptations, he has three for Satan. It's exactly the same temptation that he had to Eve. And it's exactly the temptations that he had to the people in the wilderness. He comes with the food thing, right? God's starving you out here. Why don't you make this rock into bread? The next thing he says takes him up on his high place and says, well, God's word says he'll, he'll make angels have charge over you so that nothing can harm you. I've got you up on this high place. Jump off and let's test God. See if it's going to happen. And thirdly, Satan comes to try to defeat Christ again in the wilderness. And he says, you know what? I know what's coming for you and you know what's coming for you. That's a terrible way to have to gain the kingdom. All of it's mine and I'll tell you what I'll do. I will give it to you. You just got to bow knee and worship me. Right? And every time Jesus comes back with the proper response. The response that Eve should have had. The response that the people in the wilderness should have had. As God tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and chapter 8, he tells them, this is how you should have responded. That's exactly how Jesus responds. And thus he defeats Satan in the wilderness and the temptations that come. Temptations that we succumb to all the time, but Jesus did not. He defeated Satan in the wilderness. And then finally he goes on continuing to live a perfect and righteous, sinless life. And he goes to the cross. The only one that merited life eternal is now going to the cross to die. Sin is the only cause of death. How is it that he can die? Well, he can only die if my sin is put on him. And his death is because of my sin. His death is because of your sin. And he goes and here once again we see him crushing Satan's head as he defeats him in the wilderness. And now he defeats him on the cross, winning salvation for man. It's an interesting thing that Jesus uh, talks about. He, he sends his disciples out to go preaching the good news of the, of the, the gospel of the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 10, he sends them out and they come back to him and they're, they're amazed at what's going on. In Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 17, we read... The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. The gospel's going out. Jesus, again, is defeating Satan. Even the demons are submitting in his name. And then listen to Jesus' reply, verse 18. Uh, Luke 10, verse 18. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
What is going on? You remember in the Old Testament, the book of Job, the first few chapters of Job, God is in his counsel there and Satan comes to him. Where is Satan? He's able to enter into, into heaven and there's this discussion going on with God and all he's doing is accusing the brethren. That's where Satan is. But now when Jesus comes, what happens? He falls like lightning from heaven to the earth. Um, you can turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 12. John is seeing these visions, apocalyptic-type visions. And in this vision, uh, in Revelation chapter 12, he sees this woman who is pregnant, and uh, she's about to give birth. We, we discover that the woman is uh, Israel, and the, the birth that's about to happen is, is Christ. And, uh, and then there's this red dragon, this Satan, and he is there ready to destroy the child as soon as it's born. But the child is born and is snatched away up to God and it's on his throne. And now, Revelation 12, verse 7, after this happens, Christ comes and he's ascended back into heaven. And, and then we read these words in Revelation 12, 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon the dragon being Satan. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent uh, called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to earth and his angels with him. What has happened because Christ has come? This curse that was pronounced on Satan way back then is seeing its fulfillment with the coming of Christ. His head is crushed. He is now, now he is cast down to earth no longer to bring the accusations against the brethren in, in heaven. And then we see Satan's final end in Revelation chapter 20. I believe it's something still to come. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, we see the final end after this great battle and Satan's defeat. He says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This promise of the coming one means a defeat of Satan, a total and complete defeat of Satan. His head is crushed by the coming of our Lord. This is a promise. It is a curse for Satan, but it is good news to us. and should bring us great joy. Secondly, we see that uh, his coming from Genesis 3.15 uh, is a curse. Secondly, you'll notice from Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, God is calling Abraham uh, apart from the, uh, out from the rest of the world, and he says, I'm going to work through you kind of exclusively. And uh, in verses 2 and 3 of Genesis chapter 12, he says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, uh, I will curse, and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. He is talking about the coming seed of Abraham who will be a blessing into all the world. And it's through Abraham's line that this blessing will come. And so you look in the genealogies of, 
of uh, Matthew and Luke, and what we'll talks about the genealogies of Jesus, lo and behold. Well, certainly there's there's Abraham, right? Got to be, because the promise of the blessing is coming through him, and he will be a blessing to all nations. Well, what kind of blessing is this going to be? I know this seems like a Bible drill, but I'm going to ask you to turn to uh, Ephesians chapter two. What kind of blessing is this going to be? In Ephesians chapter 2, we begin in verse 1. We're going to read the first seven verses before we get to those we all know by heart. It says, uh, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived with them at one time, gratifying our cravings, uh, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. What was our condition? Well, we were in sin and thus objects of God's wrath. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness for us in Christ Jesus. We're going from wrath in verse 2 or verse 3 here. We were objects of wrath and now because of the coming of Christ and what he's done. In verse 7, we are objects of his riches lavished on us. From wrath to riches. Right? Not rags to riches, but from wrath to riches. This is a great blessing. And we see also in Ephesians chapter 2 more of this blessing in verse 11. We read, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that is, uh, done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from, from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants and the promises without hope and without God in this world. What was it before? We were, we, we were excluded from the covenant, the Gentiles. We were without hope and with, uh, without God in this world. That was not a good place to be. But because of the coming of Christ, you can read on through here, down to verse 19. Let's pick it up in verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or aliens, but fellow citizens of God's people and members of God's household. Foreigners and aliens. Now we are members of God's household. We are no longer foreigners and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with God's people. Who are the people of God? We are. We're God's people. Together with those who are believers in Christ and their, their uh, uh, natural descendants of Abraham, yes, they're God's people, but so are all of us who have the same faith as Abraham. One family, not two. One family, one God's people. We're citizens together with them. What a great blessing it is to go from wrath to riches and to 
go from being foreigners and aliens to being citizens of God's kingdom. Thirdly, I want you to know from Isaiah chapter six, or excuse me, Isaiah chapter nine. It's a very familiar passage this time of year. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. We read, "For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it, upholding it with justice and righteousness from this time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So his coming, the shape of it is, first of all, is a curse to say, and then a blessing to all who are, have the same faith as Abraham, and it's also, beginning to see more of the shape, it's in, 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 he came to inaugurate a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, come to earth. The people at the time of Christ's birth, many were looking for a king to restore that kingdom, right? You remember in Matthew chapter 2? What do we see in Matthew 2? Who's coming to see the baby Jesus? Wise men, right? What are they looking for when they come to find the baby Jesus? King of the Jews. And so they naturally go to the royal city, Jerusalem. So where is he? He's been born king of the Jews. And, it, you know, that's what upsets Herod. But they're coming to look for the king. Jesus in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, um, they... The religious leaders see Jesus uh, casting out all of these demons and they say he is doing it by the power of Satan. And Jesus says, you know, a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. Satan can't uh, work his, it, against Satan this way. And then amazingly he says in verse 28, Matthew chapter 12, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, which indeed he was driving out demons by the Spirit of God. He says, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We're not looking for some future kingdom. The kingdom came with the king in his first coming. And he's casting out demons and he says, the kingdom of God has come upon you. In John chapter 18, where Jesus is set before Pilate, and he's being uh, questioned by him, and Pilate asks him, are you, the, are you the king of the Jews? And uh, Jesus responds in uh, John 18, verse 36. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews, but now my kingdom is from another place. Then you, you are a king then said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you are right in saying that I am a king. In fact, it is for this reason that I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is on the side of the truth listens to me. Jesus came uh, to be the king of the kingdom of God. Not to overthrow the Romans or to boot them out but to set up the kingdom of God in which in which he came and he actually did. And Pilate had no idea that he was dealing with spiritual things right here. As Christ was doing greatest battle 
with Satan at this point, and he was about to send him to the cross where Satan's head would be crushed. The king has come in Jesus, and he's brought a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, and we are part of that kingdom this morning as we just read a little while ago in Ephesians chapter 2. So the box says uh, of the promises of his coming, it's going to be a curse, it's going to be a blessing, and he's coming to inaugurate a new kingdom. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? And you think, how can that be? How can a virgin have a son? That doesn't happen. We live in a material world, right? And these kinds of things just don't happen in a material world. Virgins don't become pregnant and have children. That was what uh, Joseph must have thought as well in our text this morning when, the, uh, uh, when he found out that Mary was pregnant. And he, he says, well, by the way, in those days, you, you may recall that if you're engaged, you have to break that engagement with a divorce. He was engaged to her. She was still a virgin, and she comes up pregnant, and he's thinking, this is bad. I'll just divorce her quietly. That's when the angel comes and says, no, don't do that. Don't do that. This is the Lord's doing. It's a Holy Spirit has come upon her, and she's become pregnant. by This is a miraculous thing, Joseph. This birth is going to be miraculous. It was foretold by the prophet Isaiah so many years ago. It would be miraculous. Mary can't understand it either when the angel first comes and announces it to her in, in Luke chapter 1. Verse 26 says, In the sixth month, God sent an angel, Gabriel, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel said to her, Greetings to you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at these words and wondering, what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. Uh, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Uh, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And here it is. Mary's thinking, I'm a virgin. She says, how will this be? Asked Mary, since I am a virgin. And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born to you will be called the Son of God. His birth would be miraculous. And we see that indeed that's what happens with the coming of Christ. He said, it's a miraculous, a virgin birth. You don't find that in, in science books. It's a miracle. Well, fifthly, we see about this, this box, this promise, this, this, this thing that they were looking forward to that maybe as the uh, people who just had the Old Testament were looking at it and go, I, I don't know how this fits together. I don't know, I don't know what it's going to look like exactly. But they would have found the, the promise of his coming in Psalm chapter 130. 130th Psalm says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attended to my cry for mercy. 
If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you're feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. In his word I put my hope, my soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all of their sins. How is he going to do this? How is the Lord going to redeem all of Israel from their sins? All of God's people, how is that going to happen? It's promised it's going to happen. Well, it happens with the coming of this one on this first, first Christmas season. We see it in Matthew 121 when the angel is speaking to, to Joseph and he's telling him that Mary's going to have a son and when she has a son, you're going to give him the name Jesus. Why is that significant? Well, the name Jesus, same for the Old Testament word Joshua, Yeshua, means the Lord saves. You're going to give him this name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He's going to be the one who will redeem Israel. He's going to be the one to bring the redemption. He will pay the price for your sins. The penalty for all of my sins, I can't pay for. I don't, I don't have enough credit. Jesus comes and he takes it all himself takes it to the cross and experiences the complete wrath of God poured out on sin, on my sin. And then my sin is paid for. I don't owe any more. I can't pay God anything else for my salvation. It has been accomplished for me by Christ dying on the cross. The payment for every sin I've ever committed or every sin I ever will commit has already been taken care of. God's wrath poured out on Jesus as he paid for my sins on the cross. And it was on the cross when he cries out, it is finished. All of the sins of all of God's people poured out on Christ the complete, full payment, the redemption of all of God's people is completed. The payment is done, and he's able to cry out, it is finished. He redeemed us all from our sins. People before the birth of Christ may have been looking at all this, and they go, that's, that's for me. I know it's for me. I see kind of the shape of it. And, and I, I, can, I can kind of feel the weight of it. And I shake it and I, I hear how it's moving around. I'm not exactly sure how all of it's going to, to come about that it's going to be a curse, but it's going to be a blessing, that it's going to bring about a new kingdom, that it's going to be miraculous, and that it's going to be the salvation for my sins. But I want you to know when Christ came, it's unwrapped, and we see how it all comes to fulfillment in him. This is cause for joy. This is cause for joy for everyone who is a child of God. 
And I hope this morning that you go from this place rejoicing in what he has done for us. Let's pray.